The fact that Ben has asked me to do this again, I think is a sign of one of two possibilities. Um, either that he is a risk-taking entrepreneur, or that he's a slow learner. So I'll let you decide uh, which is which. Um, as Ben said, we are in the midst of our series on the Beatitudes, and I will confess to you that uh, the ter whole term Beatitude confused me for years. Like, what the heck does that even mean? And so I was pretty sure it meant something like this. That, my friends, is a B with an attitude. No? Okay. Um, which reminds me, by the way, do you know why bees always have sticky hair? Anybody? Because they use honeycombs. Oh, see, there it is. There it is. The groan is real. I am not only a father, I'm a grandfather, which means that my dad joke game is next level. Next level. In truth, uh, you know, beatitude is actually a word that means ultimate happiness or ultimate blessedness. And so today, um, we're talking about a particular beatitude that has to do with a hunger, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So um, as we think about this verse today, um, I just want to focus on three words, especially um, hunger, um, righteousness or justice, and filled. And I'm going to start not in that order. I'm going to start with righteousness because I think to get a real understanding of what this verse means, we really have to start by getting a really good understanding of what this word righteousness or justice means. Now, um, if you were here last time I spoke, you'll remember that um, I mentioned that I was a seminary dropout, um, which means, amongst other things, that I did not study Greek. Um, but I did learn how to use a Greek lexicon and do a little word study, which I think, in essence, just means that I'm dangerous. Um, but uh, notwithstanding that, we're going to try it anyway. So the word for righteousness here is a word called... Daikasune, daikasune, I don't know, you pronounce it, not me. Um, and, uh, and so there's this, you'll see, depending on which translation you read, you'll read it as righteousness, or sometimes you'll read it as justice. And so people tend to kind of divide up into camps here, is it righteousness or is it justice, which is it? Um, and uh, maybe a better, fuller uh, definition here is the righteousness of which God is the source uh, or author. Um, that's maybe better, but better still, I like the, uh, what, what uh, Dallas Willard has to say about this. He says, the best translation of Daikosune would be a paraphrase, something like, what it is about a person that makes him or her really right or good. Or for short, we might say, true inner goodness. And while I think that's as good as far as it goes, I feel like any time we want to understand what Jesus is saying well, we need to understand context. And in this particular case, I want to spend a moment on uh, cultural context, right? So as an American in the 21st century, when I read a verse like this, my first thought is about me as an individual. So if I think about righteousness, my first thought is my personal righteousness. Um, but the first century Palestine, the Jesus uh, uh, period that Jesus lived in, was not hyper-individualistic uh, like ours. And, and just to give you an example, for instance, when I say something about my family, 
some of which are here today, uh, my immediate thought goes to my nuclear family. Um, but if I was uh, living in first century Palestine and I said family, that's not what I would have thought of, right? I would have thought at least of my extended family and maybe of my clan. So when I think about this verse and I think about what would Jesus have meant when he said this and what would his hearers have understood at the time, it wouldn't have been limited to just my personal rightness. It wouldn't have been that individualistic. So um, the uh, super authoritative um, available online translation from John Lewis of what uh, this word means is rightness. It is that all things would be right. Um, and so we're talking there that, that everything, that me, that my character, my life, but also all of our lives together, all of our community, everything about us would be right. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be right as they should be, right? But of course we know that things are not right as they should be. In fact, nothing really is as good as it should be. It's, it's um, like the old Calvinist uh, doctrine of total depravity of man, uh, by which they meant not that um, everyone was as bad as they could be, just that no one was as good as they should be. Everything, including creation, is impacted by the fall. Nothing is quite as it should be. In fact, that's why Paul says in Romans 8, uh, he writes these words. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. For creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we were saved. So when I think about um, how I think about this concept of everything being a single thing and everything working together um, as it should be ultimately, um, well, there's a way I like to think about it. Here we go. It's a beach ball coming to a Dodger game near you. Um, but before that, it's a little illustration. So. The way I like to think of it is this. Um, I could imagine that the, the red panel here is maybe our individual relationship to, uh, to God in, in right relationship. Maybe the blue is how we relate to uh, each other in community. Uh, maybe the orange is the way our economy works and the yellow our politics uh, and the white our engagement our relationship to created things. And when things are as they should be, I can identify all these different panels, but they're really just one thing, right? They're really just one thing. They are things as God intended them to be in their fullness, right? When everything is together and it's not, I don't get silos. I don't get to pick my personal righteousness and my, versus my justice, right? They're, they're all together. I don't have to choose, and I don't get to choose. Um, they're the one thing. 
But as I said, you know, we know that things are not as they should be, so um, my lovely assistant will swap us out. So it's a little more like this, right? We have this deflated beach ball. This is what happens when things fall apart, right? Every panel, my individual righteousness, my relationship to creation, the way we do business, the way we reign in politics, every piece is impacted by the fall. No panel is unimpacted. And so the longing that we have is a longing to see things reinflated, if you will, renewed back to their full shape. Now, I can still recognize it as a ball, right? I can still recognize what this thing is. Um, just like I can still recognize, we can still recognize the image of God present in each person. And we can still see, when we look at creation, we can still see the glory of God reflected. It's not torn apart in the sense that I can't recognize it, but it's not as it should be, right? And so we long for things to be right, for things to be as they're supposed to be. That sense of rightness is very much related to the biblical concept of shalom, right? Which a word you guys are familiar with, often translated peace, but it doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means that things would be as they should be. Dallas Willard puts it this way, Shalom, it, it's a peace as wholeness, as fullness of function, as the restful and unending creativity involved in a cosmos-wide cooperative pursuit of created order that continually approaches but never reaches the limitless goodness and greatness of the triune personality of God, its source. So Shalom is what we would hope for. And of course, because we don't quite have that, because our beach ball looks like that, we have a hunger. And hunger is what I want to talk about next. Now, hunger is um, something, when it's real, real hunger is deep, right? It's a basic, it represents a basic need. Um, it's visceral, right? And it demands attention. We don't just sort of casually be hungry. Well, you could be, uh, but not in a real sense, right? You know, there's the hunger like, I want potato chips, but that's not what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about desperate hunger. And in that sense of hunger, it's not optional, right? It's not optional. Um, when we're truly thirsty, it is not optional. It needs and demands satisfaction. Hunger also changes your perspective. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, I backpacked a little over 100 miles in the Sierras, including a summit of, of Mount Whitney. And when you're doing a trip like that, you don't pack anything extra, right? You, you just don't, because um, anything you, you pack, you have to carry. Um, and so you, you operate on sort of the minimal necessary amount of food. Well, uh, the last day of this trip, uh, we opened up uh, and cooked a canned, uh, of canned bacon. Now, I don't know if you've ever had canned bacon, but I have to tell you, it was the most delicious thing I'd ever tasted. <laughs> it tasted so good. I was so happy. In fact, it tasted so good that when I got home, um, I prevailed upon my mother, 
against her better judgment, to go out and buy some of this canned bacon and cook it up for us. And I have to tell you, it was awful. It was terrible. But being hungry changed our perspective. And the same can be true. Like, if you can imagine if you were uh, stranded in the desert for three days without water and you happen upon an oasis, you're probably not going to spend a lot of time critiquing the temperature of the water, right? You're going to dive in and you're going to quench your thirst. Um, so it changes your perspective and, and we should be hungry when we look at the world as it is. We look at that deflated beach ball. But if we're honest, we're not always hungry, not in that deep, visceral sense. Um, in fact, you know, uh, I think many of us probably know some people who, for a variety of reasons, will forego food for a number of days, right? And then they'll tell you, you know, well, after a certain period of time, uh, they don't really feel hunger uh, the way they would normally. And the fact is, we can become like that too, right? We can come, become complacent or apathetic about our own condition or about the condition of the world. Uh, sort of the why bother? Uh, everything's screwed up. It's always going to be screwed up. What's the point? But Jesus doesn't say, blessed, super happy, are the apathetic. Blessed are the complacent. And he says, blessed are the hungry. And hunger motivates action, right? When I'm hungry, if you put some food in front of me and I'm really hungry, I'm going to eat it. If I'm really thirsty and you put water in front of me, I'm going to drink it. Hunger motivates us to take action. The good news about being hungry for things to be right as God would have them to be right is that we get to partner with God uh, in that action. And I want to just take a moment and just sit, mention as an aside a little something about that, about taking action. So the, the action that really counts when we're talking about coming into and desiring things to be as they should, coming into the rightness that we would desire, that God would design for us, the change that matters, the action that's important, is the action that's taken in partnership with God. Action that's taken apart from that can be a lot of noise and a lot of movement, but not necessarily the kind of impact we would hope for. Uh, I had this painfully uh, brought home in an illustration this week. Um, we have uh, a, 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 um, a mesh uh, wireless system in our home. And um, so a couple of the nodes went out recently, and you have all these nodes. Basically, if you don't know what that is, you have these nodes spread out throughout your house and creates this web of, of Wi-Fi coverage. Well, a couple of the nodes went out of... Uh, service uh, recently, and I decided uh, it was probably time to upgrade and, and buy some new nodes. We were on like, you know, version 1.0 of the hardware, and they're on like 6.3. So it was time to upgrade the hardware, and, uh, and so three new nodes arrived this week. And so I get them set up, they seem to be operating, everything seems to be good, and I move one of them into the office, which is where the main node is supposed to sit, and connect it to the modem, and the lights come on, and it doesn't connect. It doesn't work. What the heck? So I try all three of these new nodes. None of them work. So of course, I get on the phone with tech support. 
for, I kid you not, five and a half hours of tech support. It's just terrible. So frustrating, nobody could figure out. I think I talked to five different techs, all these different levels. I didn't know there were that many levels of techs, but evidently there are. And nobody could figure it out. So I go to bed that night, super frustrated, and at two in the morning, I wake up and I think, wait a minute. So I actually got up at two in the morning and went to the office and uh, connect everything and everything works. So here's the story. So the, the whole like wire situation underneath my desk in my office is kind of a mess. It's kind of a pain to get down there. And so when I move the new node into the office, the connector on the node is the same on the, as the connector, the old node, new node, same connector. So you know where this is going, right? Um, I just, I'm not gonna climb underneath the desk if I don't have to, I just connect the node, the new node to the old node's cord. Well, the connector was the same, but the transformer down of the plug is not the same. So it wasn't getting the right kind of juice. So even the light was going on, it really wasn't working. Plug it into the right cord, amazing, it all works. So, um, so it just reminded me though, like we can take action, we can lean into the idea that we're gonna change ourselves or we're gonna change the world, but if we're not partnering with God, you know, we're like that stupid dude who plugs his new node into his old, uh, anyway, that's just so dumb. The great thing is that when we do work though, in partnership with God, it's awesome, right? We get to see him really do all the heavy lifting and we just get to ride along. Something we say at Vintage here sometimes is that we're joining God in the renewal of all things. And I love that because first off, it's all things, right? It's not just one thing, it's not just me, it's all things, it's we're reinflating the beach ball. We're joining God in the reinflation of the beach ball. Um, and that's, what, that's the action that, that matters. Now, I want to step now into the idea of filled, what it is to be filled. Because after all, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice because they will be filled. In other words, that hunger, that thirst will be satisfied. I mean, that's why they're happy. That's why they're blessed because they're, that hunger will be met. Well, how is that? We live in um, what we call the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is present now, and, but not yet, not fully yet as we would have it. Um, I'm not fully as I should be. You're not fully as you should be. Um, but yet we see change. I mean, I know that I'm not in the same place today that I was five years ago, and boy, I thank God for that. Um, but I am still painfully aware that I'm not all that I should be. And of course, it's not hard to look around the world and know that it's not all that it should be, even if there are places where we see positive change. So how can I be filled? How can I have that hunger satisfied in a world that's still screwed up, in a me that's still screwed up? And I think the answer to that is essentially two things, change, and hope. So let me talk about change for a second. Um, you guys uh, have probably all heard this parable 
uh, but I'm going to tell it anyway, about the guy who is walking on the beach, and there are a million starfish that have been washed up on the beach, and they're dying because the tide has gone back out, they're stranded on the beach, and they're going to die outside of the ocean. And so there's a guy who's walking down the beach, and he picks up a starfish, and he tosses it in the water. And he bends down, and he picks up another and tosses it in the water. And he just does this as he's walking down the beach. Another guy is on the beach as well, and he looks at him, and he says, what are you doing? That is pointless. There are millions of starfish here. You're never going to make a difference. First guy bends down, picks up another starfish, and throws it in the water, and he says, but I made a difference for that one. So, the difference is the difference we can make, right? So, the way I'm filled, the way I find satisfaction, is by focusing on the change that I can make, not on the change that I can't. What is the change that I can make, not on the change that I can't? Because if I look at the change that I can't, I'm in danger of falling into despair. And that's still, still true, right? I mean, if I focus on the change that I can make, there's still so much that's not right in the world. The, the beach ball is still so deflated. Things are still not as I would hope, as God would intend them. I have still this danger of falling into despair. So the other piece of this is hope, right? What is our hope? And ultimately, our hope is that we have a promise from God that the beach ball will get reflated, that things will once again become as they should be, that there will be a time when there will be no tears and no sorrow and no death. And we have to find ourselves grounded in that hope, in that expectation of that kingdom to come. The, the kingdom that is not yet, but the kingdom that we pray will come. It will come on earth, even as it is in heaven. The, the thing that we hope for, and I like this quote. By the way, uh, Ben did tell me that it was a requirement that I quote someone from Britain. So here it is. Um, John Stott said this. God has promised a day of judgment in which right will triumph and wrong will be overthrown and after which there will be new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. For this final vindication of right, we also long, and we will not be disappointed. Well, that's great, and we do long for that. But how do we know that that's just not some sort of airy-fairy, uh, pie-in-the-sky sort of hope, right? How do we know that that's real, that that's solid, how can we count on it in such a way that when we look at the world as it is today, we don't give in to despair? And the answer to that is the very character of the God who is there. We know that there is a God who is there, who is merciful and just and powerful and faithful. And when he says that he is going to bring all things right, we know that he means it. My ultimate uh, ability to survive when I look at suffering that exists in this world today is not rooted in the idea that I'm going to somehow fix it. It's rooted 
in the fact that there is a God of the universe, a God of all creation, who has promised to redeem both me and everything else. His character is the anchor that keeps us from crashing on the rocks of despair. So, um, to sort of bring that to a conclusion then, I would summarize the sort of flow of things like this. Righteousness, rightness of things is present but flawed as it stands today. And hunger, the hunger that we feel because we were made for that rightness causes us to move, causes us to take action. And because we can take action, we can see change. But our hope, our ultimate hope, is in the God who is there, who promises to bring that restoration. So, what are you supposed to do with that? What am I going to ask you to do with that? Well, three, three questions for you. Uh, the first is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty and hungry for you to be right with God and for things to be right in the world as they should be? Or have you grown complacent or apathetic and it's not, why bother? If that's you, then I want to invite you uh, when we move into worship and the prayer team is down up front to come forward and ask them to pray with you for that hunger to come back, for that thirst to come back, to reignite the passion to see things right as they should be. Or maybe uh, my question is, are you frozen? Uh, you know, you're, you hunger and long for things to be as they should be, but the needs of the world are overwhelming. And, and where do I even begin? And the answer is focus on the change you can make. And uh, here today, uh, right over here is Rachel Repko, who is our, uh, directs all of our uh, partnering with our community partners. And she would love to connect with you to direct you with how you can engage, how you can lean into making a change today. You heard about the Door of Hope event. Um, our other partner, STARS, is busy collecting food on an emergency basis for people who lack food. There are things that we can do, and Rachel's available to help you do that. Or are you despairing? Have you given up hope? Have you looked at the state of the world or looked at your own state? and thought there's no hope, it's not, there's, there's no point in continuing uh, to bother. If that's you, when we go into worship now, my encouragement to you is lean into the very character of God. Lean into who he is, because that's our anchor. It's who he is that makes the promise that he makes so valuable. So. Uh, my final encouragement to you is let's stay hungry. Um, let's hunger for things to be right. Or in those sage words of the most interesting man in the world, stay thirsty, my friends. <laughs>